Book Two, Chapter Twelve of Arachne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joyce Martin. Arachne by George Ebers. Translated by Mary J. Safford. Book Two, Chapter Twelve. It was long since Herman had felt so free and light-hearted as during this voyage. He firmly believed in his recovery. A few days before he had escaped death in the royal palace as if by a miracle, and he owed his deliverance to the woman he loved. In the temple of Nemesis at Tennis, the conviction that the goddess had ceased to persecute him took possession of his mind. True, his blind eyes had been unable to see her menacing statue, but not even the slightest thrill of horror had seized him in its presence. In Alexandria, after his departure from Proclusi's banquet, she had desisted from pursuing him. Else how would she have permitted him to escape uninjured when he was already standing upon the verge of an abyss, and a wave of her hand would have sufficed to hurl him into the death-dealing gulf? but his swift confession and the transformation which followed it had reconciled him not only with her but also with the other gods for they appeared to him in forms as radiant and friendly as in the days of his boyhood when while bias took the helm on the long voyage through the canal and the bitter lakes he recalled the visible world to his memory and from the rising sun phoebe apollo the lord of light and purity gazed at him from his golden chariot, drawn by four horses, and Aphrodite, the embodiment of all beauty, rose before him from the snowy foam of the azure waves. Demeter, in the form of Daphne, appeared, dispensing prosperity, above the swaying golden waves of the ripening grain-fields, and bestowing peace beside the domestic hearth. The whole world once more seemed peopled with deities, and he felt their rule in his own breast. The place of which Bias had told him was situated on a lofty portion of the shore. Beside the springs which there gushed from the soil of the desert grew green palm-trees and thorny acacias. Further on flourished the fragrant Bitharan. About a thousand paces from this spot the faithful freedman pitched the little tent obtained in tennis under the shade of several tall palm-trees and a sea-gel acacia. Not far from the springs lived the family of Amalekites, whom Bias had known from boyhood. They raised a few vegetables in little beds, and the men acted as guards to the caravans which came from Egypt through the peninsula of Sinai to Petra and Hebron. The daughter of the aged sheik, whose men accompanied the trains of goods, a pleasant middle-aged woman, recognized the Biamite, who, when a boy, had recovered under her mother's nursing, and promised Bias to honor his blind master as a valued guest of the tribe. Not until after he had done everything in his power to render life in the wilderness endurable, and had placed a fresh bandage over his eyes, would Bias leave his master. The freedman entered the boat weeping, and Herman, deeply agitated, turned his face toward him. When he was left alone with his Egyptian slave, with whom he rarely exchanged a word, he fancied that, amid the murmur of the waves washing the strand at his feet, blended the sounds of the street which led past his house in Alexandria 
and with them all sorts of disagreeable memories crowded upon him, but soon he no longer heard them, and the next night brought refreshing sleep. Even on the second day he felt that the profound silence which surrounded him was a benefit. The stillness affected him like something physical. The life was certainly monotonous, and at first there were hours when the course of the new existence, so devoid of any change, oppressed him. But he experienced no tedium. His mental life was too rich, and the unburdening of his anxious soul too great a relief for that. He had shunned serious thought since he left the philosopher's school, but here it soon afforded him the highest pleasure, for never had his mind moved so freely, so undisturbed by any limit or obstacle. He did not need to search for what he hoped to find in the wilderness. His whole past life passed before him as if by its own volition. All that he had ever experienced, learned, thought, felt, rose before his mind with wonderful distinctness, and when he overlooked all his mental possessions, as if from a high watchtower in the bright sunshine, he began to consider how he had used the details and how he could continue to do so. Whatever he had seen incorrectly forced itself resistlessly upon him, yet here also the Greek nature deeply implanted in his soul guarded him, and it was easy for him to avoid self-torturing remorse. He only desired to utilize for improvement what he recognized as false. When in this delicious silence he listened to the contradictory demands of his intellect and his senses, it often seemed as though he was present at a discussion between two guests who were exchanging their opinions concerning the subject that occupied his mind. Here he first learned to deepen sound intellectual power and listen to the demands of the heart or to repulse and condemn them. Ah, yes, he was still blind, but never had he observed and recognized human life and its stage down to the minutest detail which his eyes refused to show him so keenly as during those days. The phenomena which had attracted or repelled his vision here appeared nearer and more distinctly. What he called reality and believed he understood thoroughly and estimated correctly, now disclosed many a secret which had previously remained concealed. How defective his visual perception had been! How necessary it now seemed to subject his judgment to a new test! Doubtless a wealth of artistic subjects had come to him from the world of reality, which he had placed far above everything else. But a greater and nobler one from the sphere which he had shunned as unfruitful and corrupting, as if by magic, the world of ideality opened before him in this exquisite silence. He again found in his own soul the joyous creative forces of nature, and the surrounding stillness increased tenfold his capacity of perceiving it. Nay, he felt as if creative energy dwelt in solitude itself. His mind had always turned toward greatness. The desire to impress his work with the stamp of his own overflowing power had carried him far beyond moderation in modeling his struggling maenads. Now, when he sought for subjects, beside the smaller and more simple ones appeared mighty and manifold ones, often of superhuman grandeur. Oh, if a higher power would at some future day permit him to model with his strong hands 
this battle of the Amazons, this Phoebe Apollo, radiant in beauty and the glow of victory, conquering the dragons of darkness. Arachne, too, returned to his mind, and also Demeter. But she did not hover before him as the peaceful dispenser of blessings, the preserver of peace, but as the maternal earth goddess robbed of her daughter Proserpina. How varied a meaning was this myth, and he strove to follow it in every direction. Nothing more could come to the blind artist from nature by the aid of his physical vision. The realm of reality was closed to him, but he had found the key to that of the ideal, and what he found in it proved to be no less true than the objects the other had offered. How rich in forms was the new world which forced itself unbidden on his imagination! He, who, a short time before, had believed whatever could not be touched by the hands, was useless for his art, now had the choice among a hundred subjects, full of glowing life, which were attainable by no organ of the senses. He need fear to undertake none, if only it was worthy of representation, for he was sure of his ability, and difficulty did not alarm him, but promised to lend creating for the first time its true charm. And, besides, without the interest of animated conversation, without festal scenes where, with garlanded head and intoxicating pleasure soaring upward from the dust of earth, existence had seemed to him shallow and not worth the trouble it imposed upon mortals, solitude now offered him hours as happy as he had ever experienced while reveling with gay companions. At first many things had disturbed them, especially the dissatisfied, almost gloomy disposition of his Egyptian slave, who, born in the city and accustomed to its life, found it unbearable to stay in the desert with the strange blind master who lived like a porter, and ordered him to prepare his wretched fare with the hand skilled in the use of a pen. But this living disturber of the peace was not to annoy the recluse long. Scarcely a fortnight after Bias's departure, the slave Patran, who had cost so extravagant a sum, vanished one morning with the sculptor's money and silver cup. This rascally trick of a servant whom he had treated with almost brotherly kindness wounded Herman, but he soon regarded the morose fellow's disappearance as a benefit. When, for the first time, he drank water from an earthen jug instead of a silver goblet, he thought of Diogenes, who cast his cup aside when he saw a boy raise water to his lips in his hand yet with whom the great Macedonian conqueror of the world would have changed places if he had not been Alexander. The active, merry son of Bias's Amalekite friend gladly rendered him the help and guidance for which he had been reluctant to ask his ill-tempered slave, and he soon became accustomed to the simple fare of the nomads. Bread and milk, fruits and vegetables from his neighbor's little garden, satisfied him and when the wine he had drunk was used he contented himself, obedient to old Tabus's advice, with pure water. As he still had several gold coins on his person, and wore two costly rings on his finger, he doubtless thought of sending to Calisma for meat, poultry, and wine, but he had refrained from doing so through the advice of the Amalekite woman, who anointed his eyes with Tabus's salve, and protected him by a shade of fresh leaves from the dazzling rays of the desert sun. She, like the sorceress on the owl's nest, warned him against all viands that inflamed the blood, 
and he willingly allowed her to take away what she and her grey-haired father, the experienced head of the tribe, pronounced detrimental to his recovery. At first the beggar's fare seemed repulsive, but he soon felt it was benefiting him after the riotous life of the last few months. One day, when the Amalekite took off his bandage, he thought he saw a faint glimmer of light, and how his heart exulted at this faint foretaste of the pleasure of sight. In an instant hope sprung up with fresh power in his excitable soul, and his lost cheerfulness returned to him like a butterfly to the newly opened flower. The image of his beloved Daphne rose before him in sunny radiance, and he saw himself in his studio in the service of his art. He had always been fond of children, and the little ones in the Amalekite family quickly discovered this and crowded around their blind friend, who played all sorts of games with them, and in spite of the bandage eyes, over which a broad shade of green leaves could make whistles with his skillful artist hands from the reeds and willow branches they brought. He saw before him the object to which his heart still clung as distinctly as if he needed only stretch out his hand to draw it nearer, and perhaps, surely and certainly, the Amalekite said, the time would come when he would behold it also with his bodily eyes. If the longing should be fulfilled, if his eyes were again permitted to convey to him what formerly filled his soul with a delight, yes, beauty was entitled to a higher place than truth, and if it again unfolded itself to his gaze, how gladly and gratefully he would pay homage to it with his art. The hope that he might enjoy it once more now grew stronger, for the glimmer of light became brighter, and one day, when his skillful nurse again took the bandage from his milk-white pupils, he saw something long appear, as if through a mist. It was only the thorny acacia tree at his tent, but the sight of the most beautiful of beautiful things never filled him with more joyful gratitude. Then he ordered the less valuable of his two rings to be sold to offer a sacrifice to health-bestowing Isis, who had a little temple in Calisma. How fervently he now prayed also to the great Apollo, the foe of darkness and the lord of everything light and pure. How yearningly he besought Aphrodite to bless him again with the enjoyment of eternal beauty, and Eros to heal the wound which his arrow had inflicted upon his heart and Daphne's, and bring them together after so much distress and need. When, after the lapse of another week, the bandage was again removed, his inmost soul rejoiced, for his eyes showed him the rippling emerald-green surface of the Red Sea, and the outlines of the palms, the tents, the Amalekite woman, her boy, and her two long-eared goats. How ardently he thanked the gracious deities who, in spite of Stratton's precepts, were no mere figments of human imagination, and, as if he had become a child again, poured forth his overflowing heart with mute gratitude to his mother's soul. The artist's nature, yearning to create, began to stir within more ceaselessly than ever before. Already he saw clay and wax assuming forms beneath his skillful hands. Already he imagined himself, with fresh power and delight, cutting majestic figures from blocks of marble, or by hammering, carving, and filing, shaping them from golden ivory. And he would not take what he intended to create 
solely from the world of reality, perceptible to the senses. Oh, no! He desired to show through his art the loftiest of ideals. How could he still shrink from using the liberty which he had formerly rejected, the liberty of drawing from his own inner consciousness what he needed in order to bestow upon the ideal images he longed to create, the grandeur, strength, and sublimity in which he beheld them rise before his purified soul. Yet with all this he must remain faithful to truth, copy from nature what he dared to represent. Every finger, every lock of hair must correspond with reality to the minutest detail, and yet the whole must be pervaded and penetrated, as the blood flows through the body by the thought that filled his mind and soul. A reflected image of the ideal and of his own mood, faithful to truth, free, and yet obedient to the demands of moderation. In this sentence Hermann summed up the result of his solitary meditations upon art and works of art. Since he had found the gods again, he perceived that the muse had confided to him a sacerdotal office. He intended to perform its duties, and not only attract and please the beholder's eyes through his works, but elevate his heart and mind, as beauty, truth, grandeur, and eternity uplifted his own soul. He recognized in the tireless creative power which keeps nature ever new, fresh, and bewitching, the presence of the same deity whose rule manifested itself in the life of his own soul. So long as he denied its existence, he had recognized no being more powerful than himself. Now that he again felt insignificant beside it, he knew himself to be stronger than ever before, that the greatest of all powers had become his ally. Now it was difficult for him to understand how he could have turned away from the deity. As an artist he, too, was a creator, and, while he believed those who considered the universe had come into existence of itself, instead of having been created, he had robbed himself of the most sublime model. Besides, the greatest charm of his noble profession was lost to him. Now he knew it, and was striving toward the goal attainable by the artist alone among mortals, to hold intercourse with the deity and by creations full of its essence elevate the world to its grandeur and beauty. One day at the end of the second month of his stay in the desert, when the Amalekite woman removed the bandage, her boy, whose form he distinguished as if through a veil, suddenly exclaimed, The white cover on your eyes is melting. They are beginning to sparkle a little, and soon they will be perfectly well, and you can carve the lion's head on my cane. Perhaps the artist might really have succeeded in doing so, but he forbade himself the attempt. He thought that the time for departure had now arrived, and an irresistible longing urged him back to the world and Daphne, but he could not resist the entreaties of the old sheik and his daughter not to risk what he had gained. So he continued to use the shade of leaves, and allowed himself to be persuaded to defer his departure until the dimness which still prevented his seeing anything distinctly passed away. True, the beautiful peace which he had enjoyed of late was over, and, besides, anxiety for the dear ones in distant lands was constantly increasing. He had had no news of them for a long time, and when he imagined what fate might have overtaken Archaeus and his daughter with him, if he had been carried back to the enraged king in Alexandria, a terrible dread took possession of him, which scattered even joy in his wonderful recovery to the four winds, 
and finally led him to the resolution to return to the world at any risk, and devote himself to those whose fate was nearer to his heart than his own weal and woe. End of Book Two, Chapter Twelve Recording by Joyce Martin